Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Second only to Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, Karl Marx, The Communist Manifesto, is considered by some to be the most influential book in history. In a few short years, the philosophy of Karl Marx changed the course of civilization. No other system of ideas transformed the world as quickly and comprehensively. At the height of political Marxist power and influence, half the world was under its dominion. But the Berlin Wall fell over three decades ago, and we entered the so-called post-Marxist world. Does Marx still matter? If so, to whom? Let's discuss. Hello, Greg. We're back again. Hey, Pat. Good to see you. And um, today we're talking about Marx. And I hope you notice that I'm wearing a red. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing a red uh, shirt, and and just so that uh, I, we don't I read. Freak, yeah, we don't freak. I, I also have a little button here. I don't know if you can see my button, but it's an old. Uh, it's a vote Republican button too. Oh, so I see. Cover, yeah. Okay. We're covering all red states. The, Covering yeah, all red states, red <laughs> red politics, red states. I got you. <laughs> there we go. Hey, this is I, I'm really looking forward to this. And I think we need to engage the public a little bit about how we met and how mm -hmm. we developed our relationship. And um, uh, my wife, Paula, her dad, Chuck, uh -huh. uh, was uh, grew up in the Midwest and he uh, divorced and then ended up marrying your sister. Exactly. So we're kind of related somehow. He, he, your sister's still alive. We love her dearly. And, and she's 87 years old yes. and you're her younger brother. Yes. And, uh, Chuck died uh, about a year ago and we yeah. went back to the funeral and had an opportunity to sit around and engage and become really good friends in the week or two that we were there helping your sister close out the account. And I, I tell this story about, um, Chuck, uh, who, he, even though we love him dearly, he was a little bit to the right of the... Um, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, he was very right-wing. And okay. uh, to the right of Rush Limbaugh, he, he would make the John Birchers look a, a liberal. Maybe. And, and uh, I remember him saying, you know, uh, Greg is going to be coming to my house, and it's too bad you guys haven't met yet. This is before, you know, this is two years ago. And he said, you know, he's a communist. And my initial thought was, you know, Jesus, Chuck, everybody's a communist to you. You're so, you know, uh, right wing in your beliefs. So I ended up Googling you and lo and behold, you're the editor of um, Mark, you're a contributor to Marxist Leninist today. I read a wonderful article that you wrote in Cultural Matters about John Coltrane and the revolutionary yes. features associated with that. You've written a books. Uh, on the Russian Revolution, and a prolific blogger that uh, deals with contemporary topics through a Marxist point of view. So for this particular podcast, I thought, you know, I, got a, I have a lot of questions about, uh, you know, I, I'm one of the most liberal people I know, but I don't know many people that continually uh, orient themselves through their uh, in terms of Marxists or, um, you know, um, American communists or so forth. And I want to ask you some questions. <laughs> Certainly. Great, and, great. And, you know, specifically about Karl Marx. And in preparation for this, I did a lot of reading about Marx. I thought I knew a little bit about him, obviously, the, the low-hanging fruit. He, he was a fascinating guy. He was. He was a, he was a really interesting fellow. Um, grew up at that time, France and Germany were kind of configured a little bit differently, but uh, grew up right on the German-French border. Mm -hmm. uh, long history of the family had were rabbis. Uh, you know, his dad needed to convert to Lutheran because they, they were... Yes. They were prejudiced against Jews back then. Anti-Semitic, yes. 
and this this you know he 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 had a, a fascinating early childhood got getting kicked out of uh place after place uh, tell me a little bit about what you know about his initial 20s when he was involved yes. with uh the newspaper and also he was hegel was his kind of mentor sure. and i don't know much at all about hegel and i know you do yeah. have an almost your doctorate in philosophy tell me about that Yes, well, let me just say first, uh, I, I count myself as a Marxist, but I want to separate myself from a lot of academic Marxists, a lot of people that embrace Marxism, but are afraid of communism, which is an oddity, but it's an oddity only in the United States. And that has to do with the legacy of, uh, of anti-communism, uh, what we call McCarthyism. So there's a genuine, genuine fear and a general fear of being labeled a communist. You know, uh, uh, I embrace that, I am, but I can't say all my life I have because it's been a risky business. I have an FBI file. Um, I, I was going to bring my FBI number and show <laughs> off a little bit, but I'll do it for another occasion. But I have a file number. It's a 107 file. In fact, I have two because if you were a communist that you traveled overseas, and bear in mind, I didn't become a communist until 1975, formally. But even in that era, if you travel overseas, you've got, a, I think, a 108 number, which they also tracked you on. So um, McCarthyism was a, was, a, was a beautiful, beautiful system because it didn't touch the lives of most people. But the people whose lives it did touch, it touched dramatically and, and destructively. And probably what attracted me to, to being not just a Marxist, but also to being a communist, was I met a number of people, working class people in Pittsburgh when I came here for graduate school, who had been through McCarthyism and lost their, their jobs, had lost, they were steel workers, they were Teamsters, they were uh, various uh, working class uh, jobs that they, they held, and they all lost their jobs. They often lost their spouses and their children were alienated, um, and they suffered. Right. And yet they were the, they were, they reminded me so much of my own upbringing and the people I grew up with, uh, the working class people I knew where I grew up and their, their dedication, their steadfastness in the face of all that repression and their fundamental honesty impressed me right. so much that I needed to know more about it, not just from a theoretical point of view of being a quote unquote academic Marxist, which is not very, very threatening today, wasn't then. Uh, but to being really putting their lives on the line and being activists. So back to Marx, he was born in 1818, and uh, you, you tell the, the story very well. Um, Hegel was the most influential philosopher at that time in Germany. And so he, he fell into a group which came to be called the Young Hegelians. And that's essentially his philosophical groundwork. But most of his story is leaving that tradition. Not entirely, of course. He learned a lot and he kept a lot, as we all do. But Marxism, as it came to evolve, was beyond that. A lot of academic Marxists get stuck in the young Marx, the so-called young Marx, and they, they read his early manuscripts. Uh, they're, they're very interesting. They're certainly uh, insightful into who he became, but they don't tell the whole story. He's pretty much a liberal in that era. And his entire career is essentially one of a, an evolving philosophy, an evolving ideology, an evolving ism. And he, partner, he, uh, he partnered up with uh, Frederick Engels, who was the son of an industrialist, a German industrialist, who spent a great deal of time in England and wrote a very good book about the English working class um, and its conditions. And as a, and this partnership grew, they learned. They, European history was evolving and they were evolving with it. So they were so, kind so, of, they were a team and they progressed together both in their friendship and in their political philosophy. It right. evolved. And right. And, and interestingly enough, Marx became, as you mentioned, uh, persona non grata throughout Europe. He was kicked out of numerous countries. Well, he had to leave. He ended up in, in uh, the British Museum. He ended up in the UK or in Britain, but he really lived in the British Museum because he, he studied there intensively. 
So and, wait, Greg, let me show you this. This is a this is his timeline here. So he grew up in Tier till about 17, went to college. Yeah. And then uh, he went to London when he was about 30 and, and finished out his life in London. But in the meantime, he was in Bond, Berlin, mm -hmm. back in Bond, Cologne, Paris, Brussels, Paris, Cologne. <laughs> getting kicked out of all those places yes. through his yes. writings. And, and, so and, they, and the beauty of the relationship between, between him and Ingalls was that Ingalls had money and Marx had none. And so right. essentially Ingalls became the um, financier, the person that kept him, sustained him while he did most of the work. In a way, it's a pity because Ingalls was an equally powerful intellect. I mean, he, he wrote a number of great books, but as a collaborationist, he deferred greatly to Marx. Right. So it was a wonderful, wonderful relationship that they uh, they had. There's a movie which I haven't watched. Uh, uh, it should, but it's called The Young Marx. I watched. I understand it, uh, it's quite good. It's quite. I watched good. it last week. Did you? Yeah. What'd you think? What were your thoughts? What were your what were your uh, it it shows you that they were just young whippersnappers. It was like the yeah. dead poets. It was the dead poets society. I see. And yeah. they were brilliant. And Ingalls ended up um, um, being very interested in when he went to London. The factory conditions were horrible, and yes. he would date the date of this young Irish factory girl. And one of the she things was his housekeeper. She was actually his housekeeper. Yeah, yeah. And after she died, he actually married her sister, who was another uh, housekeeper. Yeah. Marx was, you know, had a good relationship, a, you know, loving wife, great with his kids, had a lot of tragedy with his kids. But here's something I, I, that I thought was interesting. He, he's just a brilliant guy. I mean, he, he, if you're looking at statistically uh, the bell-shaped curve, he is definitely three standard deviations out there. And he would go to the British library mm -hmm. and take, you, you couldn't copy things. So he would write longhand, you know, uh, Adam Smith and all the things and the factory conditions and mm -hmm. the economics. And, um, and he spent hours and hours and hours doing research and carefully uh, developing his theory. So yeah, and Ingalls was one of the only people that could read his handwriting. So, you know, after he, after he died, Ingalls put together Das Kapital, the final well, few volumes. Volume two and volume three, yeah, and, and, right. and surplus value also. So, yeah, he could read his uh, handwriting uh, and his notes were uh, voluminous. And uh, of course, there's uh, a number of uh, those notes that have been compiled into books even before that, the Grandrisa, uh, was one example. That's kind of a notebooks for capital and for his economic writings. But what you find in Marx is a kind of congealing of, uh, of, of uh, French socialism, which is where he drew his understanding of socialism from and modified it and clarified it uh, and, and, and made it scientific. Uh, English political economy, you know, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and that bunch and he refined that, which became his, uh, his uh, and of course, philosophically, German philosophy would be through Hegel. Um, that's controversial among Marxists to what extent the Hegelian remnants are still in his later works, to what extent that still exists. How, I mean, there are certainly scholars that think you can't understand capital without understanding Hegel. I think that's not, not true. In fact, in one of the prefaces, uh, Marx himself says, you know, they, they turn Hegel on his head. So it suggested that it's, it's not a Hegelian track. But like anyone, he, he bore some of the, 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 uh, his uh, intellectual development in his later works. So, so it's a fascinating, fascinating history. So and the evolution about, of ideas is remarkable. Yeah. Tell, tell me about Hegel with religion. At that time, the church and the power structures were inextricably linked. And mm -hmm. Marx did his famous, you know, uh, religion is the opiate of the people or opiate of the masses or whatever. And he kind of pushed back at, um, at religion, which was pretty radical back then, wasn't it to do? And then he evolved out of that. He kind of said, oh, well, it's not, well, it's not religion. It's, it's yeah. the, the, the powerful people controlling things and religion. That's, that's his liberal cool. period. And so he takes Hegel, which, uh, 
of course, is based upon the ideal and it essentially spiritualizes philosophy, whether you want to call it religious or not. It's a spiritualization. It's an idealism. It's, it's a glorification of ideas as opposed to the material world. And he and the other young Hegelians rebelled against that, as you would expect students of Hegel to do. You know, that's what young academics do is they take on their mentors. Right. And uh, so that's the early liberal Marx is this rejection of, of, uh, of spiritualism. Or the material philosophy that, that guides Marx all through the rest of his life the seeds of that are there in that rejection of, of, uh, of the spirit and, and, of course, religion. But in that famous quote about religion is the opiate of the people, it's often misconstrued. It's, it's meant in a, uh, a positive way, in a semi-positive way. It's meant to say that the needs of the people are so great that they draw solace from religion. Uh, it, it's, it's perhaps misplaced, but it's still solace. And you find that throughout the working class movement. Right. You find the church is always being a place where, for example, in this country, in the U.S., where immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe would find some solace. The church would be there. Often the church, the, uh, the priest would speak the same language. The other people who spoke that language would go to that church. And so you found a, a glue Right, kept these communities together. Oh, my father. And I think that's the, the sense that Marx was using. Right, my father with the uh, Irish Catholic in Brooklyn, sure. growing up in the slum. Or look at the Black Church. You know how powerful a, 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 a feature that is into so many people's lives because their lives are difficult. And, right, and, right. Yeah, yeah. And when you don't have a political uh, foundation, when you don't have a a political option available to you somewhere to go and organize you and your, your, your brothers and sisters to, to fight whatever you're facing, you've always got the solace of the church or of whether it's Catholic church or the Protestant, not so much the Protestant church, but in other religions, Islam and others, you find the same kind of solace that the church provides. So it's often a, a battle between secular philosophies like Marxism and the church for that, uh, for those answers, to give those answers to people. It needn't be, but it often is. For example, liberation theology in, in Latin America right. kind of melds into the Marxist movements in Latin America. That's why the church, the establishment church was so, so harsh on it, on liberation theology. So tell me how bad things were in in 1850 in London. I mean, the the, the, yeah. the average factory worker could work 84 hours a week. Yeah, 12 uh, hour days were not uncommon at all. Child labor uh, was, was readily a part of how things happened. Right, right. Uh, the um, poverty was, for part of his time there in London, he was extremely poor, living in a one you know house flat and- and couldn't go out because he sold his coat because he needed to buy food. And, you know, I mean, all these stories, uh, you know, they're true or not. But so part of his, the, of course, you had the steam, steam technology come. Yeah. And labor and the whole concept of working for somebody changed as you had people doing smaller little pieces of the clock. It was the original Amazon, <laughs> you know. Well, it's. It's not only the objective plight of workers, which of course is quite harsh and people like uh, Charles Dickens uh, portray that extremely well. Uh, Marx admired Dickens and, and some of the other English writers who could capture the, the moment, but it wasn't just the moment, it was the radical change in the lives of the lesser people in England in a course of 50 years or so from uh, a time when you had uh, agricultural capitalism to a time in which the villages were all uh, broken up. They had to chase, they had to drive that, that, those agricultural workers into the urban areas to work these factories. And so they used the enclosure acts to do that. So the commons, which were, existed all over England, it was just kind of a common property where if you weren't doing too well, you'd go off and hunt. And, uh, 
find some food or, or plant gather firewood or yeah 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 gather firewood all those kind of things was was purposely destroyed so that people were forced into cities and forced to take urban jobs uh, factory jobs so the disruption in their life and people forget what feudal feudalism didn't have a clock there were clocks but people didn't have a clock people worked based on the life cycles the the day cycles you get up in the morning when you get up, you start working in the field and you do what you can do. And when the, when the lights go on, you stop. And maybe you take a day off. You're not driven by time. But the factory system gave people an entirely different cultural framework. They had to be there at a particular time and they couldn't leave to a particular time. The shock on people must have been incredible to go from one social system to another like that. And then the, the, the inhumanity of that system, because there was no... There was no, they, they, the word exploitation came into existence as human versus human in that era. Prior to the, the 19th century, exploitation was exploitation of inanimate objects. Uh, right. But that, that concept came into existence precisely because they were treated like, like uh, uh, animals, like uh, oxen. They were treated like uh, resources, you know, they didn't have a humane existence. And those are the conditions that people found themselves in. And those are the conditions that, again, Dar um, Darwin uh, uh, Dickens portray so well in, in, in many of his writings. So that brings us to he and Ingalls are there. They're observing this. Uh, and that gets us to the Communist Manifesto. And yeah. the... Yeah. And the, um, which was, you know, not a, it's easy to read. It's not that complex, but uh, he laid out, or both of them laid out these 10 planks of what they think uh, are the problems and how they would like to see things re reordered, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's a really a first attempt to make, a, um, to theorize the working class movement to treat the working class movement as something that's leading towards uh, radical change, a change in uh, a, a, a changes all of society, and it envisions that kind of thing, and it separates itself from the utopianism of similar movements. If you go back to that time, there was ferment everywhere. I mean, there was the Owenites and uh, other utopian socialists who wanted to build their new harmonies. There are societies in which. Uh, Everyone would be egalitarian and live and create these from scratch. Of course, they were unrealistic, but they were one approach. There was the Chartist movement, which thought that if, if we give the right to vote to all the workers because they didn't have that right, that would be the basis for enormous change. And uh, in, in that same period, Marx and Engels were, were, were thinking about what this would mean. And they were becoming more and more skeptical that this willy-nilly kind of approach could possibly work. So they wanted to make it more scientific. So you get a manifesto for the communist movement, something that makes concrete and makes, uh, 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 brings clarity to how to go forward. And the communist and socialist is sort of used interchangeably? Sure, at that time, at that time, I mean, there were, in the French Revolution, there were, um, different factions and there was a radical call it a communist fashion in the french revolution it believed that the completion of the french revolution would be uh the uh, end of uh, of ownership as people knew it both the end of the feudal lords but also of, of capital um but this was the first really construction of a of a comprehensive theory about how you go about getting beyond capitalism it identified capitalism as the problem it identified the proletariat, the working class, as the agent of change, and it identified what would succeed capitalism, socialism. Right. Now, the word communism, socialism were kind of interchangeable, um, but the communist uh, group that Marx and Engels were working with called themselves communists, hence the Communist Manifesto. So here's something he mentions in that, you know, the wage labor and mm -hmm. how much of a problem that was, which seems like well, that's kind of radical. But I was watching an old Chomsky um, 
video uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how Abraham Lincoln agreed with them. Yes, that that felt that you know that 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 wage labor was no different than slavery; it should be temporary, and that you know people should have more um, self-actualization with their work. And so it it's it's amazing how much of the manifesto is a concern over the human psyche and and human emotional development and how this system uh, ends up uh, constricting that and making that um, is it kind of inhumane in a way by its very nature. Sure, sure. But at the core of it is the concept of exploitation, right. of exploitation. It's again, it was transferred from uh, a, a commentary on how people use things to their advantage to a concept of taking advantage of people from using things and animals for their advantage to taking advantage of people. That became the core essence of, of exploitation and what exploitation was. And you get a picture of that, an industrial picture of that. You have to remember this is all evolving at a time when, uh, when, um, when uh, uh, industry was evolving into uh, these powerful, powerful factory systems with uh, uh, modern generation of power and utilization of machinery. And when you, when, you, when you take, for example, coal miners, nothing can explain exploitation better than a situation of a coal miner. I was just, I was just looking at some of my, uh, my uncle who raised me, uh, uh, stubs, his uh, pay stubs for working in a, mile, a mine, Bunsenville mine near Danville, Illinois. He started in 1936, and I have all the pay stubs until those mines closed in 47 or 49. But a pay stub tells you the whole story. He was paid 68 cents a ton for the coal that he dug. At that same time in 1936, a ton of coal sold in the marketplace for $8 a ton. And if you look at that pay stub, he's paying for his dynamite. He's paying for his tools. He's paying for everything that enabled him to go and risk his life in a hole 500 feet below the ground, at a coal face, blow it up, dig it, put it in a cart, and have it taken away and then sold by a capitalist. Sure, there was an investment in building that mine and constructing the, the temple and in constructing the elevator to take him down and so on and so forth. But what would you call? The 68 cents a ton that he got for risking his life and the $8 a ton that the owner got other than exploitation. I mean, how can you call that anything else? How can you see that as anything other than just raw exploitation of the labor of a worker? There was no, there was no great sacrifice or any great uh, uh, value added by anyone but those workers. So that brings us, let's just jump ahead a little bit here. Um, we've got Thomas Piketty with his book, Capital. And mm -hmm. he studied, I read the whole thing, and it, but I should have just read the one principle summarizing it because that's what the whole book was about, which is that the yeah, people yeah, with yeah. capital- I recommend are, that, just read the summary, yeah. <laughs> are the, the rate of return on capital is greater than the economic growth. So in other words, those with capital and through this system, so any system you imagine, you work making avocado sandwiches for me and I pay you X amount and then I sell the sandwich, your labor is always going to be considerably lower than the profit that I will get by employing you, waging, making my, my sandwiches. Could, could, I, could I give you, could I give you um, uh, an argument? I love Piketty. I mean, I think that book is great. It really right. brings a lot of facts and figures and information to the fore. And right. it really gives you a, a picture of, of, of inequality. But it's essentially social democratic in character. It does not deny capitalism. Why would it? But his argument in its essence is that if the level of productivity growth were commensurate with the level of income of the workers, then we would not have this growing inequality. 
That's essentially what it comes down to. That's a half step because the coal miner could, could be more productive. Say the, the tools that were available for him or her to use became more efficient. They could become more productive and they could be paid better commensurate with the growth of the productivity, which consequently follows, but they'd still be exploited. Right. I mean, it evades the issue of exploitation. Sure, it would be nice. It would be certainly nicer if workers got paid commensurate with the growth of productivity, which hasn't happened since the 50s in the United States. Well, I love but the way even if that were the case, the 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 relationship of capital to the worker at the workplace, at the point of production, at the coal face for the coal miner would still be exploitative. He would still be, be being exploited by the capitalists. Well, Picardy, Picardy said, if, if you look at it, he said there have been points of correction from like 1945 to 80, mm -hmm. and that was because of World War II and how uh, things were taken over by the war effort and the average person came out well, and then poof, gone. Well, well that's not completely honest on his part because uh, yeah, certainly during the war, uh, the rate of exploitation was restrained to some extent, though it still grew. But after the war, because of the Cold War and because of McCarthyism, the grand bargain was if you give the working class a payment commensurate with the growth and productivity, they will side with you against the Soviet Union and the communists. And that was the grand bargain. Right. And that's why what the French call the Trente Glorieuse, the 30 years, the glorious 30 years between 45 and on were right. glorious mm -hmm. because there was a buy-off for Cold War reasons to secure the working classes in Europe and the United States to the Cold War ideology, the Cold War scheme, the anti-Sovietism. They wanted them on our, on, on, on our, the, our capitalist side in that Cold War. Yeah, and, so, it, and it fits perfectly. Well, That's the beauty of Piketty because he shows you that the long term, the long and very, very long term trajectory of capitalism, accepting a period like that, is for more and more and more inequality. He demonstrates that. And, and when that book came out, most of your uh, neoliberal economists, even your liberal economists, the uh, Krugmans and the, and the, uh, and the other Nobel laureates that are somewhat left, they would never have said that. They would never conceded that. But they had to concede it after he showed for, 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 if you go back to the first actual survey ever conducted of class relations was by Gregory King in I think 1618. That level of inequality, that level of class differentiation between the elites in England and the rest of the, it, is, it was better than it is today in most yeah. of the capitalist countries. The percentage of people owning the consolidate, yeah, the wealth, yeah. The other thing about Picardy is his solution is, and this will get us back to the Communist Manifesto, his solution is you, if you don't control this process, this, this kind of the fluidity of capitalism's, uh, capitalist ability to always concentrate wealth to smaller groups of people, the only thing you can do is have very, very progressive and effective taxation. And then he says in his book, and that'll never happen. <laughs> you know, the, the likelihood that the people in power are going to do that. He, he's written since, and, and he, he hangs, he clings to that though. However, he, he, he realizes it's not the solution, but he, he says that's the only solution. The only, so right. So he continues to say, that's what we should do. Uh, it's, look, social democracy is in trouble. Part of the reason we have Trumpism and urbanism and, and the uh, AF, AFD in Germany and, uh, and uh, uh, the French uh, National Front and so on and so forth, uh, Boris Johnson. We're having it because social democracy, which has been traditionally the, the dam against Marxism, against communism, has failed. It's failed everywhere. It's failed everywhere. Inequality is like a broken dike. The water is rushing in and it can't be stopped. And in the past, social democracy had that Cold War bargain on its side because it sided with the, the coal warriors. But there's no Cold War bargain anymore. 
And, and we saw that with Reaganism, and then we saw it with, uh, with Clinton, with uh, the neoliberalism of Clinton. There is no bargain anymore. Labor, our, our, our sleepy labor movement, which frankly has done an injustice since they threw out all the lefties and the communists in the 50s, that labor movement doesn't even begin to know where to, doesn't know where to even begin to stop that tide of inequality. Right. Nor are they trying very hard. And that's, that's a sad commentary on where we are. But so that's the demise of social democracy. So let's get back to the 10 planks here. I just printed this off before you came on. The 10 planks of Communist Manifesto. And this is from a conservative, the conservative USA. So they, this is horrible to them. This is, you know, okay. they, they, we right. stopped this because this is destroying us. A heavy progressive income tax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the free education for all children, valuing education makes makes sense abolish the rights of inheritance you know yeah i wh why did we get rid of the death tax as as they call it uh the uh, people who working in factories having a control over their decisions associated with that um Here's one that I didn't really know. Confiscation of property of all immigrants and rebels. Those are people that leave the country. To a certain extent, that would mean if you if you leave, you don't have the right to then take all of your wealth well, and everything with you. It's, what, it's what we did in, America, in our revolution. In our revolution, if you were a uh, loyalist, you had your property confiscated or you were imprisoned because you were... Uh, but but in, in the case, it's when you have capital flight, which you always have after any kind of... a socialist revolution, the people want to pack their bags and put all the gold in and take it with them, you've got to confiscate that gold because they're going to take it otherwise. Centralize the communication transportation. That makes perfect sense. So here's well, like, like, like they like they stopped doing in Texas uh, two years ago, four years ago, whenever they did it. Exactly. And now you have no power, no water. But then you have the uh, uh, property, you know, the you know, yeah. uh, uh, so that's where people start to, you know, I would say not everybody, but certainly maybe me, I'm starting, okay, now what is, what does that look like? I understand work, workers collectives, I understand, but when you're ab abolishing property or trying to control that, eh, it's getting a little flaky. What, well, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it uh, wasn't ever stated this way, and it, shouldn't be stated this way and it isn't this way but what communists and marxists advocate is the uh is the uh socialization some people call that nationalization but the socialization of um capitalist enterprises that's what we're talking about those okay. enterprises that engage in exploitation systemic systematic systemic exploitation like the monopoly capital firms, like you know, all the big powerful firms, General Motors, all those firms would become social property, as they were made in 2008 when we bailed them out. We actually gave more money. We bought all of the value. We put more money into those companies. I think General Motors is one example. We put more money in bailout money than the then market value of those firms. That was in effect buying them for the people, but we right. gave it right back to them. So why did we stop there? Why didn't we get rid of General Motors? They obviously were a participant in destroying the economy in 2007, 2008, 2009. We had an opportunity to buy it, but that goes against our grain. This is what the manifesto is saying. Those oh, firms should be. And, and you also have banking, centralized banking. Who's against that? I, you know, I, when you go through these small towns, what are the only places that are still open? You have the food, food desert of the dollar stores, and then you have these banking institutions because they can extract rent yes. from people. They're still very effective. Exactly. Uh, to me, that, exactly. uh, that doesn't quite make That's sense. Exactly right. Look, people don't like banks. Uh, we group on, a, I associate with uh, every two weeks we go out with our signs, a bunch of old fogies like myself that say, stop banking the bomb. And uh, we target a particular bank that invests a lot of money in nuclear weapons. You, the signs are kind of vague and you got to explain to people what stop banking the bomb means. 
But I guarantee you, everyone that drives by honks their horn and says, we're with you because they hate banks. Right. They hate banks. I mean, there's no one likes banks. Banks don't do anything for you, but take your money. Mm-hmm. And when they give you some money, they charge you too much. So why, are, why do we have private banks? Right. So I, to me, it, uh, I, you know, I, what am I missing here? I, I, it seems like it's a fairly, you know, predictive mm-hmm. establishment of beliefs that um, are somewhat reasonable. So yeah. it's not, not, yeah. not, not crazy. Yeah. I think the tactics, the tactics of the communist movement, uh, as they evolved in Marxist time, from uh, a kind of naivete when he thought that if the workers got the uh, franchise, if they could vote, that that vote itself would eventually take care of social change and uh, achieve these kind of uh, reforms or changes to a time where they, they witnessed 1848 and, and later the betrayal of some of these, uh, uh, these voting patterns and uh, ability to to uh, manipulate uh, elections and votes and so on to the time of the uh, Paris Commune in 1871, where they saw clearly that the bourgeoisie, that is the capitalist class, were not going to allow these changes. They were not going to allow them. It didn't matter whether everybody voted for them or not. And for example, today, single payer has a following single payer health insurance, national health insurance based on Medicare, like a Medicare program has support of anywhere from 65 to 75 to maybe 80% of the people, but the capitalists are not gonna let that happen. They just won't. And that's exactly true. That's what Marx and Engels learned in 1871 with the Paris Commune. You had a rising by the Parisian people. It was clearly democratic. They were fighting the Germans, which were on the, on the outskirts of Paris. And they wanted, and they, they wanted uh, to create a new society and for, from March of 1871 till maybe June, they were successful. And Marx said, their program is a socialist program. That was a social, that's what I see as a socialist program. And you would, you would say what you just said, it's not that radical. It's, you would have, for example, election wise, you would have the ability to have a, um, a referendum at any time, at any time. You could, you know, there, there's term, there were no term limits if you want to turn out your elected person, you, you have a, a vote and you turn them out. And then you don't have six-year senators yeah. that, that, that spend the six years raising money so they can stay in that position. So I, I'm, I'm going to keep going because I got so many questions. Let's go to Das Kapital. Let's go there. What an interesting book. I think I told you I, I started the first couple of chapters of it and thought uh, I'm just a couple of... Um, you know, IQ points shy of being able to process this. I then did a couple of online lectures, college lectures of it, uh, and then went back and revisited and read the last third of it last. And it's readable. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's philosophy, sociology, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just this slow drudge explaining the problems with capitalism in clear, easy to understand progressions. And I was surprised that once I got into the the text, how accessible it was. I I couldn't agree more. How, 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 it's just fascinating to me that- Pat, Pat, I was a graduate student in philosophy and I was told and had been told since I got involved with philosophy that capital was impenetrable that if you try to read capital, you would stumble and all this Hegelianism is in there. And it's just this crazy logic. And as a, as a Anglo-American philosophy student, you won't like this, you won't make, I opened the book up expecting to be intimidated and I start reading it like you. So this is pretty damn clear. This is actually pretty clear. There's not that much that's uh, arcane or challenging or requires some superhero, uh, uh, thinking or, or research, it just starts right off with the commodity. It starts with the commodity and says, right. this is a commodity. This is exchange. These are the conditions necessary for exchange. And it just develops from there, logically. 
and brilliant, and, brilliant and, book. And a sense of humor. He's little yeah, footnotes. Yeah. He does little zingers and little sarcasm. A sarcastic and, sense of humor. That's one thing about Marx and Lenin too. Is it's funny. Sarcastic they are. So anyway, I'm just surprised. At, uh, the other thing that I I did in one of my you know, in the research for this is how a lot of people on Wall Street and the hedge fund guys and everything that they know it and read it. And, you know, they understand it. Of course, they do <laughs> for their own selfish purposes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a fascinating, uh, fascinating, fascinating kind of progression leading you to somewhat logical yeah. logical. You, you know, it's a funny thing, Pat. I'll, I'll confess, I've never read all of Capital. I never because I started I, I started in chapter one. I started at the very beginning with the commodity. And it's to me, it's like verse. I started reading that and then I just go back and start that that whole first section over again. I can't read it enough. It's just so rich and yet so accessible. Right. It it's got some big ideas, but they're made fairly clear. And then you think and think, wait a minute, there's more to it than that. And I I, I just I I love to read uh, that first section of capital. Okay, here's something for you. So Marx dies. There are eleven people at his funeral. Yeah, Highgate Cemetery. The Communist Manifesto, and it's out of print for twenty something years. He does Capital, and it's only his buddy that Ingalls that finishes it up, and that doesn't get published in English until late. I mean, he's just he just is an obscure politician. It reminds me of. Uh, you know, of, of Jesus, the Romans killed Jesus. And then you have, you know, this new Testament and that new Testament. And eventually you just can't stop these ideas from coming forth. Now that gets me to a question I have for you. You or you say you're writing for the Marxist Leninist, uh, yeah. you know, magazine. So I understand that Lenin and the Soviet Union kind of embraced this and started uh, collectives, farmers collectives, and they had factory councils, and they had many of the elements of his manifesto and beliefs were kind of being incubated in that situation. But after after Lenin got in, he was kind of a dick, wasn't he? I mean, he 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 ended up wiping out all of those councils. He reminds me a little bit of a Trump. You know, he was uh, <laughs> he was um, very capable at delivering rhetoric to the people, but he kind of latched on to Marxism the way that Trump latched uh, latched on to populism. Uh, tell me why am I why am I wrong here? What am I missing? Well, you, you, you know, it's 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 there's road there's a Paul on the road to Damascus experiences, and mine was that kind of experience. I was not born a Leninist. Uh, I I, uh, I became a Leninist really out of obstinacy because I'd heard all these accounts of what, much like you just described of of his being a dictator and this and that, a dictatorship of the proletariat and, and the barbarism of uh, Leninism and the uh, Soviet state and that, that, Well, once I, re once I started to read beyond the civics book kind of account that I grew up with, the common account, the received opinion that everybody had, and I looked at some even, even Western scholarly accounts as well, it wasn't exactly like that. And I thought, well, how was it? And you find that much of that was Cold War propaganda. Much of that story was, I mean, like, let's take Robert, uh, Robert Conquest. He was the, he was the doyen of uh, Sovietologists. He came up with this figure that 20 million people were killed in the purges in the Soviet Union. Let's cut to the chase. That's what everybody knows in this country, the viciousness of the purges. Well, they were vicious. But when the files became available after the demise of the Soviet Union, the numbers were nothing like that. That was all constructed. It was all part of a Cold War onslaught and attempt to demonize the Soviet Union. It's tough to talk about it because once you make a commitment to Marxism or communism, then you find yourself on the defensive all the time against the US opinion, you know, the US view. You made a comment a few minutes ago about how he was in the, in, in the English speaking world, 
he didn't get published. The largest political party in 1890 in, in Germany was the Social Democratic Party, a Marxist party. It was the largest political party. Uh, so no, I mean, there was continuity and growth through all that. Just didn't happen here. Didn't happen in the UK. But back to the history of the Soviet Union, it's a, uh, it's a rich, in many ways tragic, in many ways noble history. And uh, with uh, the Cold War going into our rearview mirror, in the world communist movement today, there's a, a, a fresh look at some of that history, uh, an honest look at it. People have backed away from our defensiveness because we had to be. When, when the CIA and, and all of its various arms, its propaganda arms were devising all these stories and, and uh, demonizing it and it had, its, it had its own publishing company, Prager. If you pick up a book from the 50s, it has Prager on the back label it was probably subsidized by the, by the CIA. And we know that today. So now that we can look in the rearview mirror, I can be a little more uh, uh, honest about some of the Soviet uh, errors and some of the Soviet mistakes. Was the Soviet Union ever a communist country, really? I don't know what that means. It was, it was, a, it was a country on the road to uh, communism. That's the way they described it themselves. It was on the road to communism. Uh, Stalin uh, said, and I think it was 37 with the new constitution that uh, maybe it's 38. Uh, anyway, that, that they were uh, no longer in the transitional period, but they had really, uh, the conditions for socialism were there. You know, they didn't have class struggle anymore. I think he was wrong and, and he proved himself wrong, but, but nonetheless, that's what they thought. So their own estimation of where they were and where socialism was, was often an estimation, and it was often off kilter. You, so, you mentioned uh, in some of your notes that you shared with me that, that uh, one time uh, half the world was in a country that embraced Marxism-Leninism. I think it was even greater than that. You had China, you had the Soviet Union, you had Eastern Europe, you had Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, you had Angola, you had Ethiopia, you had uh, Ethiopia and Somalia were wars and both claimed they were, they were Marxist-Leninist. You had Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia at one time. You really had a majority of the world uh, in a country that, that embraced Marxism-Leninism. Uh -huh. And uh, it showed, to me, it shows the strength of that philosophy. And some of those were, like Cambodia was a disaster, we know that, but what can you say? Of course, I mean, there were, there were mistakes made. China's a mixed bag. China has probably successfully brought more people out of poverty than any other system. And yet, you know, they're doing horrible no doubt. things. They're doing horrible things now in Hong Kong and no, they're not. surveillance. No, they're not. And... no, 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 no. We're, 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 I've got to say this and, and I'm going to be uh, dogmatic about it because I have to be in the context of U.S. propaganda in the context of a, uh, an attempt to start a new Cold War with China, I have to just say, no, that's not true. I mean, uh, if, if we were in that context, we could debate. It's, it's, it's part of a propaganda campaign, well, what the Uyghur you, campaign, what, what, the Uyghur campaign. I can show you, I can show you, um, can show you that the, 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 the sources are, are tainted. NPRs all the time, 100% on, on the Uyghurs. I, I, I get that a little bit, but they just they just passed a law in Hong Kong that no one can be in government unless they uh, pledge allegiance to uh, Beijing. You know, that was- Is that yesterday. any different than here? Well, what I mean is that- <laughs> Is it any different what, what than I here? What I mean is that it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a, a light switch. It's not on or off. It's a rheostat. There's some- there are there is some values of collectivist features, uh, and perhaps even to a certain extent centralized, common centralized um, uh, Look, control. They're, they're, you, you, you know, there, that's an event. Look at Korea. Korea was a third world country, and their industries, their LG, their car industries, was all strongly centralized, planned in in an orderly mm -hmm. fashion. So. You can't, you just can't, you know, I, I you know, you, you can't make these broad brushed um, uh, thoughts. Well, when, 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 uh, when, when your adversaries make it that kind of, when, once it becomes a Cold War, 
that's what it's going to become. I mean, right. I, I, I uh, uh, my colleagues and I, my comrades and I, we we have differences of opinion on what China is, uh, whether China is socialist or not, or it's capitalist or whatever. I, I got to put all that aside now because as I see a new Cold War emerging, the best thing we can possibly do, all of us, whether we're left, reds, uh, whatever, Democrats, or is to is to try to stop this Cold War. It makes absolutely no sense. And any logs that are thrown to that fire, like the Uyghur issue or Hong Kong or whatever, when they're just logs thrown in that fire, we have to resist it. We have to fight it. And I, no one, I don't have a big megaphone. So I just got to say, if I get a chance to tell people, I don't believe it. Right. Now we could debate it 10 years ago, we had debated. Mm -hmm. but, but now that it's been, it's been turned into a Cold War, a propaganda war, what can you do but say, show me, prove it. I don't believe it. So getting back to Marx and this idea of the kind of the Bernie democratic socialist thing, it, it seems like that there are a lot of principles of that collective decision-making as opposed to the capitalist making decisions. You, you talked about healthcare. Yeah. Uh, do you, you know, do you want a handful of firms controlling all of our healthcare and extracting an enormous amount of our GDP to healthcare that translates into going to a small group of people? Or do you want to, you know, do you want Medicare for all, which is what basically the rest of the world is? You know, do you want decisions being made in the workplace by a small group of people on a board? Or no. should those decisions be more collectively made maybe through stronger unions and through the people that are actually involved with this? Uh, the collectivism with um, transportation, a better educational system, you know, all of those concepts are, I think foundationally came from Marx and are the correct way to go. I mean, I, I, Pat, I don't know what I'm missing here. Pat, 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 the idea, you know, you said you drew this from some conservative uh, source that this is why they're demonizing. Right. Well, that, that, that's, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to demonize it. So they want to attach it to the communist manifesto. They don't, they don't, they don't for, for a second believe that there's a threat from communism in this country today. Uh, you know, I, I, I embrace that ideology, and I don't think for a second that there's a chance of at this particular moment. I think in the future, it will grow and it'll begin, it'll take some traction. But right now, there's no threat. So what would be the motivation for a conservative to say, these are 10 principles I draw from the Communist Manifesto? Oh, and, it's and right And 90% and, and, and of the people in this country would say, like you did, what's wrong with this? This is all good. Yeah. Their, their thinking is attach it to communism and people reject it. So here we get on the back of this after the 10 things. Of course, they mentioned Hillary Clinton, Saul Linsky, Obama, uh, you know, rules for radical, destroying our democracy. You know, I mean, you know. My so comrade Barack Obama, comrade Barack Obama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, that's the, that's the last uh, refuge. Of, you know, they say nationalism, the last refuge of scoundrels. Anti-communism is the last rest refuge of, 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 of scoundrels, as is racism. Right. Whenever, whenever you can't defend your position, scream communist or scream blacks, you know, that's, those are the refuge that people go to when they have indefensible positions. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully one day people in this country will learn that, that that's what anti-communism is. That's what changed the labor movement from a militant labor movement to the kind of lapdog business unionism we have today and it's a sad commentary and uh you know my family comes out of the union movement my uncle was an organizer for mine mill and smelter one of the last radical um uh, labor organizations in this country which was beaten down by the mainstream and so you know this is what we have today that's the i it, that reminds me of this book that hopefully we'll have the author on the deep grudge which is about the union movement in the, that And one of the unions in particular, which was a, quote, communist movement, which was then yeah. destroyed by uh, FE, and hopefully farm workers, a, uh, farm equipment workers union. Yeah, yeah. That's, let's I hope we get her on. That'd be great. Uh, but there are others, too. Uh, I have a, a, a you might enjoy this. I have a, a comrade colleague who wrote a fascinating book called the Communist Party and the uh, Auto Workers Union. 
and maybe we can get him to come on sometime if you're interested, if you think that would be a, uh, a good dialogue. Greg, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I think we need to maybe wrap it up and maybe we'll come back again. I'm going to, in our podcast in the down in the description, uh, link to your blog. And I suggest that anyone, everybody subscribe to your blog. It's just wonderful. And it's a wide variety of, and we'll also uh, link to the journal that you write with and participate in the Marxist Leninist today. And people can- Great, uh, thank you, some, I appreciate that. Get good. some more yeah. information from that. And I think there will, uh, maybe revisit some of their prejudices uh, about uh, having a good, my, having a, such a good friend that's a commie. Yeah, and and we commies have to have dialogue with people who aren't commies. We got to <laughs> stop just talking to each other. So I appreciate it. It's really okay. been fun, and you ask great questions. Good, and you have great comments. All right, we'll 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 chat with you again, and let's do this again. We'll see you. Okay, thanks. Talk to you. Bye bye.